You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here. And today we're going to answer this question, what does the Old Testament have to do with me? Uh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. Many of the passages uh, from Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are incredibly popular. Uh, You've probably heard sermons on them, except for this one. (laughs) Today's passage is a passage that Christians love to skip over because it's difficult. The Old Testament law, there are 613 commandments. Many prohibitions do not do this. Uh, And then some are easy to understand, self-evident, maybe even obvious, don't murder, you know, like stuff like that. And then there are others that to us seem downright strange. I want to give you a few. First, no pork. What does that have to do with anything? (laughs) Leviticus 11, verses 7 through 8. I ate pork probably six out of the last seven days last week. (laughs) I don't know, it was just, it just happened. And, uh, and for some people, they would be like, okay, if there's a religion where you can't have bacon, I'm out, you know? I'm out, I can't do it. No mixed materials, Deuteronomy 22, verse 11. You can look these up later if you want. I'm not making this stuff up. If you check the tag on your, the collar of your shirt and it's a cotton polyester blend, you can't wear it, right? It's no mixed garments, no mixed materials. No tattoos, Leviticus 19, verse 28. Maybe your, your mom, your, your grandpa tried to quote this to you when you made an appointment at the tattoo parlor, and you're like, do I need to go to a laser removal clinic? I don't know. And then, uh, and then this last one is the sin offering from Leviticus chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. This is to the average, everyday person. The moment that you find out that you're guilty of sin, You're supposed to bring a female goat, spotless, without blemish, to the place of worship and kill it. And we'll offer, you will do a little ceremony and offer the blood on the altar. How are we doing so far? Anyone keeping all of those? (laughs) It's in the Bible, right? And so it's tricky, isn't it? What does the Old Testament have to do with me? It's, it's difficult, it's puzzling, it's challenging. It, in some ways, for some people, maybe even keeps you from experiencing the gospel because you have all these questions. The Old Testament just doesn't make any sense. But I promise you, as a follower of Jesus, the teaching we're gonna go through today from Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 17, you can open your Bible if you want to Matthew five seventeen. If we truly understand Jesus, the principle he's gonna lay out for us today from Matthew five seventeen it'll help you follow Jesus better. I promise you that. It'll help you follow Jesus, as we say at Hill City Church, with everything. And for you, maybe you're not necessarily in church on a Sunday because you're interested in following Jesus. You just, you have questions. You're seeking God. Hopefully, you can have a little bit more clarity, not total clarity. Perhaps you might even have more questions after we're done today. Uh, I'm supposed to have 35 minutes last service, it was 44 minutes and 27 seconds. So not quite 10 minutes over, but uh, I'm going to be speaking fast. There's going to be lots of notes. If you love taking notes, you're going to love today. Um, 
It might feel a little bit more like a lecture, but I promise you, if we really understand Jesus' teaching here, and these are, these are words straight from the mouth of Christ. Let's jump in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish, everyone say abolish, abolish. the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. Everyone say fulfill. fulfill. Two key words today. Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, nor a dot, the smallest pen stroke in the Hebrew alphabet, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So that's pretty simple, right? Does that clear everything up for you? It would be much easier if Jesus just said it. I came to abolish the law. Easy, great, but he doesn't. What Jesus says is actually the opposite of what many modern Christians in America would expect Jesus to say. He says that the Old Testament law will not pass away until everything is accomplished, not before heaven or earth pass away. What in the world does this mean? Well, the key is understanding these two words, the difference between abolish and fulfill. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish. Abolish, we can interpret and define abolish like this. Abolish means out with the old and in with the new. Out with the old and in with the new. And many Christians, I would argue today, take this interpretive approach to the Old Testament. It's old, right? It's outdated. Out with the old and in with the new. Now, I'm not saying we're not under a new covenant. Stay with me. Kataluo, the Greek word for abolish, means to dissolve, destroy, demolish, subvert, or overthrow. Notice every single one of those definitions is negative, right? Is negative. Just want to ask you this question. Who gave the law to Moses and the Israelites? Who was it that gave the law to the Israelites? God. Does God make mistakes? No. Psalm 19, God's law is perfect. I think about these things, the way that Christians talk about, joke about, think about, read, or more likely don't read the Old Testament, almost makes it sound like God made a mistake for hundreds of years in the Old Covenant. And Jesus came on the scene to abolish God's mistakes out with the old, in with the new. Do you understand this? That Jesus is saying, when he says, I did not come to abolish the law, very likely in the way that Jesus fulfilled the law, we'll talk about that in a second, in the way that Jesus kept the law, Jews, specifically Pharisees and scribes, hyper-religious Jews, would have likely accused Jesus of abolishing the law. You're just coming to start some weird cult. You're coming here to destroy hundreds of years of tradition, God's perfect law. It's easy to see why Jews might accuse Jesus of this. In fact, they accused Stephen the first martyr in the early church of this very same thing. Acts chapter six, verses 13 and 14. And they, that's the Jewish leaders, set up false witnesses. What kind of witnesses? So these aren't actual things that Stephen was saying. These are things that in order to get him killed, the Jewish leaders are accusing him of saying. Does that make sense? They did the same thing in the trial before Good Friday with Jesus. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy kataluo, this place, and will change the customs that Moses 
deliver it to us. And what does Stephen do? Stephen doesn't say, yeah, he did come to destroy the law. What does he do? Stephen proceeds. You can read this later on your own time. We don't have time right now. Acts chapter 7, to preach a gospel presentation, entirety of Acts chapter 7. His source material is God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Moses, and God's covenant with David. He preaches the gospel from the law. Does that make sense? If Jesus said, out with the old and with the new, the old stuff doesn't matter, it's broken, it's not, then why would Stephen be able to preach that sermon? And the people, it's so, uh, to them, heretical that they kill him because of it. And he's the first martyr in the early church. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. What did he come to do? He came to, everyone say it, fulfill the law. This means that the new builds upon the old. The new builds upon the old. Yes, we are in a new covenant in Christ. We're gonna break this down and unpack this a little bit more. But that new covenant has a context. What's the context for the new covenant? The old covenant. By the way, the word's testament. We use New Testament, Old Testament. The word testament literally just means covenant, okay? So the old covenant versus the new covenant. The context for the new covenant is the old covenant, is the law. And the word fulfill here is the Greek word plerao, which literally means to fill up. Have you ever been in a restaurant and you're filling your cup and you're in a conversation or you're on your phone, more likely, right? And you're filling it up at the, the, the drink dispenser and you fill it up a little too much and your hand gets wet. Anyone? This is just me. I'm the only one who's done this. That's play rao. Literally, that is what play rao is, for something to like literally be filled up to a full measure, overflowing. Uh, it also could be translated as to complete, to realize, or to accomplish. To realize meaning to, to bring about an, a, the original intended purpose of something, to bring it to fruition. So yes, we are in a new covenant in Christ, but that new covenant has a context, the old covenant. What does this mean? This means that Jesus is the new Moses. I think that's one of the key ideas that Matthew in his gospel, more than the other gospel authors, is trying to communicate. Jesus is the new Moses. Where does Moses go to receive the law from God? He, he ascends to the top of the mountain, right? Mount Sinai. Jesus, when he's giving his seminal teaching on the new covenant, on life in the new covenant, where does he choose to do that? From the mountain. But the difference is that Moses receives that law and authority from God, and he, he basically just kind of distributes it to the people. Jesus is giving that law himself. He's the new authoritative Moses. If you were to ask Moses, is Jesus the new Moses? I think you would say yes. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. This is from the mouth of Moses. This is to uh, the, the generation that was raised in the wilderness that would take the promised land. This is Moses, prophetically speaking. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like who? Like me, a new Moses. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Not my words are gonna be sufficient for the rest of time. The covenant that God has made with me and the Israelites for right now is gonna be lasting. He says, listen, when, he, when the new Moses gets here, listen to him whatever he has to say, authoritatively, listen to him. What does this mean? It means Jesus is the new Moses. It also means that the law and the prophets point to Jesus. That's what they do. The law and the prophets point to Jesus. I, this is one of the reasons I love the resources put out by Bible Project, is their, their vision statement is uh, that the Bible is one unified story which all points 
to Jesus. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. Jesus, uh, on Easter Sunday, we know some of these stories where he appears to Mary and the women at the tomb. He appears to the disciples there. But there's this curious story that Luke records where he appears to two random guys, seems like, who are on the way to Emmaus, some random village, very small, insignificant village. And look at how Jesus chooses to communicate the gospel on Easter Sunday to these two men. He doesn't be like, bing, here I am. In fact, he conceals his identity on the road. They actually don't recognize him until they get to the dinner table. Look at what Jesus does, though. He doesn't just, here's my hands. It's different. Look at what he says, Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, that's a way of saying the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's all about Jesus. It's all pointing towards Jesus, that when we understand the beauty in that, it actually unlocks some of the the most beautiful fruit and insights and wisdom and instruction that the Old Testament has has to offer. J.C. Ryle says it like this. Think of this metaphor. The Old Testament is the gospel in bud. It's springtime right now. Do you have any buds on the trees or little tiny plants in your garden, right? The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flavor. The Old Testament is the gospel in the blade. The New Testament is the gospel in full ear. And if you understand this hermeneutic, which is an interpretive lens, you'll actually begin to see the gospel... And that that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you'll begin to see God's grace, his mercy, his love from Genesis 1 all the way through to the end of Revelation. One unified story. It's not old versus new. Yes, we are in a new covenant in Christ. But the Old Testament, you see this gospel. You see echoes of the gospel. It's all about Jesus. And you might think, that's great. That's a great principle. But what about the tattoo thing? I'm seriously worried about, you know, it's like, (laughs) but how do we, those four examples, like, I'm guilty, what? You know, okay. How does this apply to my life? D.A. Carson says it like this. As it, speaking of the law, points to him, Jesus, so he, in fulfilling it, establishes what continuity it has, the true direction to which it points, and the way it is to be obeyed. There's a lot there. D.A. Carson's a very smart guy. But it's this idea that Jesus, as the fulfillment of the law, determines how the law ought to be practiced, obeyed, what continuity exactly it has. It's not quite out with the old and with the new. That's, a too, that's like too easy of an answer. There's tension, right? Uh, it, when you read the Old Testament, there's, there's difficulty and challenges, and rightfully so sometimes. But we have to look to Jesus as our interpretive lens. Here's three filters that you can use if you're taking notes. Number one, some Old Testament laws have been completed. And I say completed in the fulfillment sense, not in the abolishment sense. Like no one ever should have followed that law anyways. That's abolishing. But fulfillment means that it's no longer binding to us living under the new covenant in Christ, but it is still instructional. Did you realize the word Torah, the first five books of the Bible, often translated law, the primary meaning of the word Torah is actually instruction. 
teaching or instruction. And that's what those 613 commandments are. We tend to think of the legal requirements of the law, and certainly there are legal requirements, but primarily they're meant to teach us what a life pleasing to God is. And so there are some laws that tend to be more civic in nature. Do you realize that uh, these Old Testament laws are both kind of managing Israel as a faith tradition, as a religion, like it's how you relate to God, but it's also managing Israel as a nation. Like they're polit- like it's the law of the land for an Israelite. And I hate to break it to you, for us who aren't part of the nation of Israel, America is not God's chosen nation. God did not write the constitution. Certainly there's, and I hate to break that to you, right? There's certainly principles, right? Kind of theistic ideologies, all that sort of stuff that, that, play, that makes its way into that. But that's why for us, it's, some of those laws no longer apply to us. It, it, they're still instructional in nature, but they're no longer binding to us. There are other laws that tend to be more ceremonial in nature uh, that have to do with the sacrificial system, for instance, or ritual washings, ones that we see Jesus and even his disciples kind of altering the meaning of those. So uh, Hebrews chapter 10, the, big, the most important one is how are our sins forgiven? Atonement, right? It's the most important one. And Hebrews 10, if you wanna study it later, read Hebrews 10. It's a case study in why don't we kill goats anymore? This is what Hebrews 10 verse 12 says. <laughs> but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, Do you catch that? I want to repeat it. For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's essentially this idea that this is why we don't have to offer sacrifices for our own atoning, our own atonement, our own forgiveness. And it actually helps us understand why. Why would God require that of anyone? Because it seems very foreign, even cruel, violent to us at times. Uh, And yet none of us would contest the verse for the wages of sin is death. Well, you don't need the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death, if you know when you you sin, you have to kill an animal because something has to die, right? Does that make sense? It's, so that's still instructional in nature for us, even though it's not binding because we recognize that all of the animals that died anyways were just pointing toward the sacrifice that was needed the savior that was needed all along, the son of God who would take on flesh and enter into our world and to die for the sins of the world. It's a once and for all, all time kind of sacrifice. But can we still learn from the book of Leviticus? And some people are like, no way. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. Our, camp, our winter camp this year, we, we talked about the gospel according to Leviticus. This is a picture from Quaker Hill. There's me on the mic. There's a goat. There's a high school student and the kids. This was, uh, this was second night of camp. So the, whole, and they, the goats were there. People know there's goats there. They know that we're doing Leviticus. And like the kids are like, please don't kill the goats. We didn't kill the goats. We did not. To my knowledge, the best of my knowledge, they're alive and well to this day. And so it's still instructional. It helps teach us about the sobriety of what happens when we sin. It teaches us about the holiness of God. It teaches us about legal requirements and how we're not sufficient on our own. So, high, so the law, the entire law, that's why you don't just throw it out, is because it's, it, it teaches us and it, it shows us and we understand the gospel better when we read the New Testament. That's the first filter. Has this been completed? 
And is there a clear passage in the New Testament where we, we see evidence of that? The second one, the second filter is, has this law been reaffirmed by Christ? If it's been reaffirmed, restated, just follow it. It's easy. Just, it, can, it continues to be binding. It continues to be law. Time and time again, Jesus in his teachings says this line, it is written. It's the Greek word gegraptai. And it's a perfect tense, which means you could translate it, it is written, it was written, it will always be written. Don't go crossing it out. Don't go erasing it. And uh, one of the greatest examples of this, that's just like Jesus reaffirmed it, it's still part of the new covenant, right? Is when Jesus is asked to explain, so what's the best commandment though? Like if you had to pick, out of 613, what's the best one? And he gives two. This might be familiar to you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, which Jesus did not come up with that on the spot. It's a quotation from the, from the law, Deuteronomy 6.5. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a quotation from the law. Leviticus 19, which by the way, is the same chapter about tattoos. And so you're like, Ugh. <laughs> no, it's totally cool if you have a tattoo, but, but it's, that's why this stuff is messy. You can't just be like, well, Leviticus, you can't follow Leviticus anymore. It's like, well, what about when Jesus quoted Leviticus and saying like, this is one of the top two things that everyone should be doing. You can't just be like, well, okay, Leviticus 19, we don't follow. It's like, that's the, th it's where it's at, right? It's, it's messy, it's tricky. But you have to look for Jesus. He said it time and time and time again. It's written. What is he saying about it? How is he using it? How is he interpreting it? So that's the first filter. Has it been completed in Christ? Has it been reaffirmed by Christ? And the third filter is, has it been reinterpreted? Is Jesus giving commentary or interpretation? And what this means is that the original intention of that law all along is now revealed in Christ. Uh, one of the most common examples in the Gospels for this is Sabbath. Do you realize Sabbath is the fourth commandment? Be really clear about this because I don't believe that Jesus ever faltered in any of keeping the law. What Jesus broke when it came to the Sabbath was people's laws upon laws about the Sabbath. So the things that Jesus did to, quote unquote, break the Sabbath that people were so upset about, you can't find specific laws in the Old Testament about that. For instance, People had laws concerning how many steps you could take from your house. And you get your little Apple watch out and you're like, one, two, three. Oh, I've already gone that many steps. I can't move, you know? <laughs> like ridiculous. The kind of things that Jesus did on the Sabbath were things like, oh, we're hungry. I should bend down on the ground and grab an ear of grain and eat it. And they're like, you're, work you're harvesting on the Sabbath. He's like, really? <laughs> harvesting on the Sabbath. Like, those are the kind of things that Jesus did. He healed someone on the Sabbath, right? And, and so, when Jesus is questioned on the Sabbath, and this is what he does. He gives commentary to explain further its original intended meaning. He doesn't just quote it, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. He doesn't just simply reaffirm it, he reinterprets it. Mark chapter two, verses 27 through 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, principle number one. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So two reinterpretations, two principles. The first one is the Sabbath is meant to be a gift that God gives us for us to trust in him and rest in him and 
He's gonna take care of us. He's gonna provide for us. And he looks at what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing and how they keep the Sabbath. It's like, huh, you're, you're accusing me of working on the Sabbath. It seems like an awful lot of work to count your steps. Hmm, seems like an awful lot of work to go around accusing other people of breaking the Sabbath on the Sabbath. You're, you're missing, he's like, you think I'm breaking the Sabbath? You're missing the whole point of the Sabbath. You're breaking the Sabbath and how you're trying to keep people keeping the Sabbath. It's crazy, it's ludicrous, it's crazy, right? So he's saying the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift, it's a gift. And the second principle is the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's like, you wanna know how to keep the Sabbath? You might wanna look at the one who is there on day six. You know, you might wanna look at the one, look to the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. And by the way, I think this is a great opportunity for us to look at Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus says, if you're weary, you're heavy laden, what does he say? Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy? Come to me, come to me. True Sabbath rest is found in Jesus Christ. Now, I still practice the Sabbath and I think it's a good thing to do. It's a gift and we should, that's another sermon. All right, the rest of Matthew chapter five, you see six, different examples from the Old Testament, six different commandments, and how Jesus reinterprets them. How he quotes it and says, here's my teaching on it, here's my commentary on it, and so that's the new law, right? And in every single one of them, he actually makes it more intense. He makes it more difficult to follow. Which is more difficult, not killing someone or not thinking about killing someone, right? And so Jesus, he reinterprets it and he actually intensifies that. So here, here's the point, don't skip the Old Testament. In your Bible reading plan, don't skip the Old Testament, it's important. It's important, it's beautiful, it's, it's given to us by God. Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17, a, a frequently quoted Bible verse by Christians was written well before the completed canon of the New Testament. And so when we read the word scripture, we have to understand, not, Certainly Paul writing to Timothy has in mind like, yeah, when the Bible's a thing, maybe, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it can, point, it can certainly include that, the whole Bible. But primarily what he's thinking about in context is the Old Testament scriptures. He says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you skip the Old Testament, you're not gonna be equipped. You're not gonna be complete. You're gonna be missing out on the teaching, missing out on the reproof, missing out on the correction. There's value, there's instruction. It's still God's word, breathed out by him. So don't skip it. Here's how I'll explain it. Here's a bit of an illustration. Read the Bible with a highlighter, not with a red pen, okay? Now, it's an illustration, so if you actually use a red pen, that's fine, okay? Don't email me about this. <laughs> Read the Bible with a highlighter, not a red pen. What's the difference between a highlighter and a red pen? With a highlighter, you highlight things that you're like, I wanna remember this, this is important, I wanna learn from this, I didn't know this before. A highlighter is a tool of humility and teachability. Do you realize that? That's not exactly what a red pen is for. Uh, in college, uh, the tool of the trade for my professors was the red pen. <laughs> and if you got an essay back, that was, had a lot of red pen, you knew you did not get a very good grade on it. Because the red pen was like, 
crossing things out, and this is totally wrong. And it was a Bible college. They're like, total heresy, you know? They're like, please don't preach a sermon about this. And it's like, okay, you know? And, and, we, and when we read the Bible, and I say the whole Bible, Old and New Covenant, we read the Bible with a highlighter to listen, to learn in humility, recognizing the authority of Scripture, not with a red pen, crossing things out that we don't like, reinterpreting good and evil for ourselves, or reinterpreting God's lasting law according to common cultural commentaries on it. This is a big deal to read the Bible with a highlighter, not with a red pen. And maybe you would say, well, I've never actually used a red pen, so I'm not guilty of this. But do you live reading the Bible with a red pen? Is that how you treat the Bible? You're above it, you're doing things to it, you're crossing stuff out, or are you setting yourself under the authority of Scripture? Read the Bible with a highlighter, not with a red pen. Let's continue in Jesus' teachings. Matthew, Matthew 5, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, so that's being a disciple and making disciples, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here in verses 19 and 20, what Jesus does is he gives two equal opposite errors. Two problems that we run into. So that's the principle, right? Read the, read the Old Testament through the filter of Jesus. Try and seek to understand it. Read, read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. All that sort of stuff. That's the principle. But like, practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we follow God's law? And there are two equal opposite errors that people fall into. And on one side, in verse 19, it's, Jesus is talking about relaxing commandments. Oh, it's so easy to follow God. Really? What about when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Later on in Matthew chapter five. And this approach, if you're taking notes, is called antinomianism. Have you heard that word before? Say that five times fast. Don't actually say it. <laughs> antinomianism, it sounds complicated, but essentially it's a combination of two Greek words, anti, which means against, we understand what that means, and namos, which means law. And it's essentially this idea that grace because God has grace for us, that's opposed to the rules. Because there's grace, you don't have to follow the rules. Why would you have to follow the rules? There's grace, right? And it's this idea that, that somehow, it's the abolishment idea. There's, like, Jesus doesn't want me to actually like, follow him or take up my cross or deny myself or do all the other things that he explicitly says over and over and over again in his teachings. Oh, grace is opposed to the rules. In the end of the first century, there was a guy named Marcion, and he was a Gnostic teacher. Uh, we know a lot about Marcion because Tertullian wrote uh, a compilation of documents called Against Marcion. And he was declared as a heretic at the end of the first century. And one of the things that Marcion did, which was very notable, was he compiled one of the earliest uh, canons of the New Testament. He started gathering these different documents. Uh, a canon is essentially just a compilation. Like, this is the set of authoritative scriptures. And Marcion did that. He was one of the first ones to do that at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. And here's what he did. He took most of Paul's writings, some of the gospels. Notably, he took Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Red pen. Scratched it out, and he threw out the entire Old Testament. 
anything Jewish he threw out. That's antinomianism. And he literally had this idea that there's two different gods. There's a God of the Old Testament, and he's a mean guy, and he's got lots of laws and that sort of stuff. And then the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And it's this old versus new idea, which you do not see a hint of that in the teachings of Jesus. And we're like, okay, well, sure. I'm not like gonna rip the Old Testament out of my Bible. I'm just never going to read it. And I think you see modern-day Marcionism or modern-day antinomianism in the hearts and the lives of many Christians in the American church today, many Christians. Paul addressed it in Romans chapter 6. It's an early form of this. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? If there's grace, why follow the rules? What does Paul say? Sure, there's grace. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? R.C. Sproul calls this kind of faith, uh, not antinomianism, he calls it easy believism. It's this idea that just say a prayer, say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You said the magic words, now you're a Christian. It's this, and I, don't get me wrong, the only work that can save us is the work that Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. Our righteous, we'll talk about this in the next error, okay? We can't save ourselves. But also, don't get Jesus wrong that he, that he calls you to follow him. He calls you to follow him. And a genuine faith in Jesus will always manifest itself in following God's rules, in following Jesus' commandments and following the law. So that's antinomianism. Grace is not permission to sin. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a cheap version of grace or a cheap gospel. The second opposite error on the other side is called legalism. Legalism is a little bit more familiar with us. Uh, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, extremely legalistic. Essentially, what legalism is, it's salvation by rule keeping. You can save yourself if you just follow the rules better or you know, keep, keep the law better. And uh, the law is a great teacher, but it's a horrible savior. And in the early church, even, there were a, a, was a group called Judaizers, which, by the way, if you, wanna re, if, if you find yourself leaning one of these two directions, if you find yourself leaning on anti, antinomianism, you're like, maybe there's a hint of that in my heart. Read James's letter to the church, where he says, faith without works is dead. Wow, okay. And if you find yourself leaning on the legalistic side, read Galatians. It's for freedom that God set us free, Right? So there's a little bit of a tension even between those two New Testament letters. That's because they're written to a specific situation and they're trying to address those things. Be careful of people who don't read the entire scriptures in light of itself. But Paul, addressing this legalistic idea and the Judaizers in the church in Galatia says this in Galatians 2 verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any more blatant than that. You can't save yourself. You can't keep the law good enough. Jesus' point in bringing up the Pharisees and the scribes is not because he's bringing up this super immoral group of people because they're so wicked. He's bringing up like the most righteous people of the day. They fasted multiple times a week. They gave more money than, than we probably do. They, they, they prayed these prayers. They knew more scriptures than we know. Like the Pharisees and the scribes were like the best of the best, 99% maybe, some of the best ones. 
They're keeping the law, the letter of the law, at least about as well as you could keep it. And yet, what, what does Jesus say about their righteousness? You gotta be better. You think 99% is good? If someone fails in at least 1% of the law, you're, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. That house of cards just comes crumbling down. It's incredibly fragile. And by the way, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, what does it lead to? Jesus was often critiquing the Pharisees. The self-righteousness of the Pharisees does not lead to loving people. It does not lead, it leads to condemnation and judgment. It leads to feeling better about yourself than everyone else. It doesn't actually lead to a transformed heart. But the law and understanding what the law is, what it can actually do is it can lead us and draw us to repentance. Jesus' words are kind of haunting. If you're trying to work your way to God, I would just say, give that up today because you're never gonna be able to quite surpass that barrier of, of perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Martin Luther came to terms with this. Right, father of the Protestant Reformation, this is what he says, the law must be laid upon those that are to be justified, that they may be shut up in the prison thereof until the righteousness of faith comes, that when they are cast down and humbled by the law, they should fly to Christ. The law humbles them, not to their destruction, but to their salvation. I think that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do in Matthew chapter five, verse 20. Humble us, with, with the fact that for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Humble us with unless your righteousness surpasses the most righteous person you know, unless you're more righteous than them, you're never gonna be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Humble us so that we fly to Christ. Humble us to our salvation. There's only one person who's ever fulfilled the law in keeping it perfectly. And he's the one who's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ the Son of God is the only perfect person who, who lived and followed God's will on earth as it is in heaven perfectly, without spot, without blemish. And what does he do with his righteousness? Hold it over us, condemn us, judge us. Jesus in John 3, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved. He takes his righteousness and he dies a sinner's death on the cross so that we might be forgiven by God's grace and his mercy, so that by his work, going, going to the cross, suffering and dying and facing the wrath and the punishment and the death that we should have faced ourselves, we might be forgiven from our sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. And so if you're here and you're trying to climb that ladder to heaven, I would say, throw the ladder to the side and cling to Christ. Humble yourself at the foot of the cross, allow Jesus to forgive your sins. But, what, but, but knowing this, it's not this, it's not just saying the magic words, Jesus is Lord. It's not as simple as that, but it does start there. It starts with a confession from your mouth. It starts with a, a belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead, but knowing full well that you can't just say Jesus is Lord and mean it without ever, without doing anything about it but to follow Jesus with everything. And so I would say to you today, would you ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life? Would you respond to the good news of the gospel today and pray and, and, and allow Jesus to clothe you with his righteousness? And I would ask you to respond in the way Jesus instructed us to respond, and that's baptism. 
It's a step Jesus commanded us to take. You wanna talk about following Jesus' commandments and doing things Jesus' way? He said, go into all the earth and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you've never been baptized, I wanna encourage you to follow Jesus in this way. And you can find out more about baptism. You can sign up online at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. All right, 30, 40 minutes and two seconds. We got four minutes left. So for, for, those, of you, for those of you who would say, who, who would say, yes, I've already done that. I believe in Jesus. I've given my life to him. I'm living in grace. You're, you're la- God lavishes his grace. Nothing's gonna pull you out of God's grace. You stand secure in his grace. If that's true, why do I have to follow the rules? And you're, you're kind of still there. Here's the motivation. It's not legalism. It's love. Love. Loving God requires obedience. As a parent, you know this. The greatest way that your children can honor you, the greatest way your children can love you is by obeying you, doing what you say as you instruct them and you want the best for them. And Think about a child who tells their mom or dad, I love you, I love you, I love you, a million times, but they never obeyed a single thing that parent asked them to do. You would begin to doubt, as a parent, do you actually, or is it just lip service? And that's the point. A faith that is lip service is not the kind of faith that Jesus commands us to have. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to obey him. If you don't trust me, take Jesus's word for it. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, everyone read the second half of this verse, you will keep my commandments. We think if you love me, you will feel loving towards me. You'll feel, lo- you'll feel it. If you love me, you'll sing more songs to me. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You will follow my new covenant. You will follow the commandments. And I believe one of the most loving things that God can do for his people is actually to give us his law. Do you realize this? Imagine a parent who didn't actually tell their children what they expected of them. All right, try to please me today. They go and they try and do something. You're like, nah, it's not what I was looking for. Try again. Ah, I didn't want you to clean your room. It's like, Imagine how crazy is that? How manipulative and maniacal is that? People, by the way, do all kinds of crazy things when we try to make up our own law for what's pleasing to God. One of the most loving, we look at the law as shackling. The law is actually one of the most loving things that the God of the universe could do. This is what I want from you. That's what the law is. God is taking the, the guesswork out of obedience the guesswork out of following him. It's in the Bible, what a gift of God that is for us. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is a masterclass in keeping the commandments. In Jesus' own interpretation on what the law actually means and how we can follow it in his life. It's how we learn to be a city set on a hill, which is a great metaphor, and I think an even better name for a church. Here's the, fi- here's the final point. We love God by keeping his law, and his law, by the way, is love. If you were to summarize the, the law that Jesus gave in the new, new covenant, it's does it love God, does it love your neighbor as yourself? 
And the, the most loving thing that we can do to, fought, to, to live for God is to love in the way that God has given us. Let's pray. God, we repent this morning of the times that where we've tried to abolish your law, where we've taken that red marker, we've scratched out things in your word, which was breathed out by your Holy Spirit because it was too complicated, too challenging, too countercultural for us. God, we repent of those things and we submit to you. Submit to the authority that you've given us in scripture. We submit to your Holy Spirit. Instruct us. Your Holy Spirit is not just our, our advocate and our healer. Your, your Holy Spirit is our teacher. Instruct us. Teach us how to follow you. We wanna be more like you. We wanna follow you with everything. And so would you shape our lives, even as difficult as that is, through convicting us, God, would we turn towards you? God, we thank you that you save us by your grace, which is a gift. We, say, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. The only reason we love you is because you first loved us and we live our, our whole lives as a response to the richness of your kindness, the lavishness of your grace, and we just stand in that and sit in that today. So I, God, I, I pray that you would use the teaching today from your word, as well as the remaining teachings from the Sermon on the Mount in the summer, God, just shape this community in the ways that you see fit. We just wanna follow you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.